A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In an experiment. Like so far. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week is an electrifying episode, as we're talking about fast battery charging and harvesting energy from the air. I'm Nick Howe. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Now that I've got a young family, a few people have asked me, are you going to buy a car? I'm a big fan of public transport, but when we're in the middle of a long trip carrying loads of stuff, automobile ownership is sometimes tempting. Should I decide to go down that route, I would most likely look to buy an electric car, but these do seem to have some issues. The phrase range anxiety is often used in association with electric vehicles and this is the worry that you'll run out of power and end up stranded during a long journey. There are also concerns that electric cars can take too long to charge when you're out on the road. To charge a battery, put very simply, you need to pump electricity into it. To speed up the charging, you can increase the level of power you're putting in. But there is a catch. For some sorts of batteries, such as the lithium-ion batteries found in many electric vehicles, charging too fast can result in permanent damage to the battery. So what is the optimum speed to charge a battery? That's what Will Che, from Stanford University in the US, is trying to find out. So let me provide the analogy of filling a bucket of water. So say your objective is to fill the bucket in 10 minutes to 80% full. There are infinitely many ways to do that. For example, you can fill at a constant rate so that it tops off at 80% in 10 minutes. You can also fill it very slowly initially and fill it very quickly later. And also the opposite, you can fill very quickly initially and fill slower later. All sums up to 10 minutes to 80%. So the way you deliver the water to the bucket is exactly what we're trying to optimize for fast charging. How do you deliver 80% worth of electrons into the battery in 10 minutes? In this case, rather than looking at an infinite number of methods, Will concentrated on a little over 200 different protocols, tested on small, cylindrical rechargeable batteries a bit larger than the AA batteries you might use at home. Will and his colleagues took a three-step approach. 
First, they repeatedly charged and discharged a batch of 48 batteries, each with a randomly assigned charging protocol. Second, they assessed the health of the batteries. But to do this, they needed a trick. The batteries in their study have a lifetime of about 1,000 recharging cycles. To fully assess their health, Will would have had to cycle them a thousand times, which would have taken a while. Instead, he took a bit of a shortcut. What we have done here is to use machine learning to basically recognize early signs of battery failure. So we don't have to charge it 1,000 times. We just have to charge it 100 times. So basically, what we're doing here is to cut the time by a factor of 10 just by having not to fully cycle the battery to failure. But instead, we looked for early signs of failure, and we make predictions based on that. And this is the final step. They fed these early signs of failure into a model, which could then identify the protocols that best balanced fast charging while minimising damage. The protocols that showed most promise could then be put up for another round of testing with a fresh set of batteries. So what the computer is trying to do here is to identify the patterns in the performance of these protocols and trying to make decisions on what to look at next. So you can basically imagine our program as a decision maker. And the decision maker is trying to say, okay, I tested this charging protocol. It sucks. So let's not do it again. Or we do this protocol and it works really well. And we say, okay, let's do it again or look at its neighboring protocols. So essentially, it's a way to try to hone in on the best charging protocol by learning from the behavior of all 200 possible combinations that we're looking at. By repeatedly going through this three-step sequence, the team were able to quickly whittle down the options to find the best way of charging these batteries. The method that came out on top rather surprised Will. Typically, what it's assumed is the best way to charge a battery is you start by putting in the energy really quickly, then you slow it down and you taper it off. This is what it has done in today's electric vehicles. When we went through our platform here, we actually found out it's better to actually keep it relatively flat, meaning that it's better to inject the energy in relatively constantly. So it was rather unexpected, I think, what we found. But because it was done in a statistically meaningful manner, we're quite confident that this was a viable outcome. In this case, it seems that slow and steady really does win the race. But what does this mean for batteries in general? Can we expect this result to change the way that electric vehicles are charged? Well, perhaps not yet. We'll emphasise that this result might only hold true for this one type of battery with its particular form factor and chemistry. There are a wealth of rechargeable battery types in addition to the specific lithium-ion battery he tested, each with their own strengths and weaknesses. He says it's the method rather than the result which is key here and hopes his testing approach, the three-step machine learning platform, can be used to develop better batteries in future. What we have realized here is not just a better charging protocol. It is rather a very generalizable platform which can be used to optimize many aspects of the battery, one of which we demonstrated, which was picking the best way to charge a battery in 10 minutes. But there are really countless other possibilities in which this platform can benefit. For example, what is the best chemistry? What is the best shape, the form factors? There are many choices and decisions to be made for a battery, and all of them take time. And what this platform, I think, can help with is to really 
save time and therefore get to the answer faster. That was Will Che from Stanford University. You can read his paper over at nature.com. Later on, we'll have further updates on the coronavirus outbreak. And we'll be finding out how Radar is uncovering ancient secrets in Egypt. That's coming up in the news chat. Before that, it's time for the research highlights. Read this week by Dan Fox. It might not be as tuneful as Walt Disney imagined, but scientists have deciphered the ultrasonic singing mice use to communicate with each other. Mice emit a variety of squeaks to communicate, but researchers have previously struggled to interpret the high-pitched sounds. Now a team have used machine learning software, called DeepSqueak, to analyse data from over 100,000 mouse vocalisations. The data were collected in a specialised recording chamber that let the researchers track which mice were squeaking and what all the mice were doing at the time of each squeak. Male mice were found to make distinct sounds depending on whether they were fighting, fleeing or chasing females. And the researchers were able to see how mice reacted to each other's chirps, changing their behaviour in response. Squeak a look at that paper in full at Nature Neuroscience. Depending on your diet, soy may already have replaced the meat and milk on your table. But soon, it could be replacing the glue holding your table together. Common glues used in the assembly of building materials like plywood or particle board are made from petroleum. But the earliest known wood glues were made of proteins, such as soy flour. If soy adhesives are to make a comeback, they will need to become strong enough to meet building standards. That's what a team of researchers from Beijing Forestry University have been investigating. They found that combining soy protein with borate salt and a toughening agent in water created a strong and environmentally friendly adhesive. The boron-based glue is three times stronger than plain soy protein and also has antimicrobial and fire retardant properties. Keep your eyes glued to that research at Green Chemistry. Next up on this week's podcast, if I was worrying about running out of charge in my electric car earlier, Nick's been finding out about a technology that may mean I always have charge, using a device that draws energy from the air. Take it away, Nick. The air is full of energy. That's what lightning is. The release of some of this energy as charged particles of water bounce off each other. So there's energy to be had, but how can we get at it? After all, lightning is not the easiest thing in the world to bottle. The thing is, we don't even need storms. The charged particles of water in the air themselves can be tapped into and used to generate a current. Several researchers have taken advantage of this, using specially designed super-thin sheets of microscopic nanowires, pulling electricity from seemingly thin air. But so far, these technologies have only demonstrated brief bursts of energy and often have to be near a lot of water. This week in Nature, though, a team from the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, have shown a similar technology, but without these problems. Their solution? Instead of designing and making nanowires out of things like silicon, they took them from a bacterium called Geobacter sulfuroductans. 
This species naturally grows protein nanowires as filaments or pili on the outside of the cell. These type of bacteria, they use these to serve as a as a nanoscale cable to conduct electrons. This is Jing Yao, one of the authors of the new paper in Nature. He's actually never worked on bacterial nanowires before. Instead, he's an expert on inorganic nanowires. But when he found out about these structures produced by Geobacter, he got excited at the possibilities. Initially, Jing just wanted to see if these bacterial wires could function similarly to inorganic nanowires. So I want simply want to replicate the similar concept by making the simplest, let's say, sensor, which usually is a humidity or moisture sensor. To make his moisture sensor, Jing removed the nanowires from bacteria using a blender and purified them. He then produced a super thin sheet of bundles of randomly arranged protein nanowires that was less than a tenth of the thickness of a human hair. He could then run a charge through it and see if it could act as a moisture sensor. Then, accidentally, the student who was working on the sensor device saw that even without supplying. The device with the external power, he could still get the electrical current signal from the device. Initially perplexed, Jing set to work replicating and re-replicating these results. Satisfied it wasn't a blip, he then started to work out where this electricity was coming from. It had to be coming from something in the air, but what? Jing's search eventually led him to the most likely culprit: water. In fact, the level of charge generated correlated almost exactly with the level of humidity in the room. I was excited because at least I knew that this is a real. But how much electricity was this tiny device actually harvesting? I think we can produce several microwatt of power across one square centimeter size. Now that's actually a small amount of power, which means that.、Uh, It can essentially only power up a tiny LED light. Now that may not sound like much, but Jing thinks that's only a test case for what this technology can really do. Humidity can pass through the layers of nanowires, so there's a possibility that you can stack a lot of them together and increase the power output. We can estimate that that if we find a clever engineering strategy to stack them in a 3D configuration, we can actually. Get the power density larger than one kilowatt per cubic meter. One kilowatt is about enough energy to power ten laptops, so it's a little bit more substantial than powering a small LED. Of course, the amount of power that can be harnessed is dependent on the amount of humidity present. But Jing thinks even in desert environments, this device would work and still produce a small amount of power. Julia Butt is a scientist who studies electron transfer in proteins who wasn't associated with this latest work. She was intrigued by the new research. I think using humidity as a, a source of of energy, a source of electricity, is a is a very interesting idea, and and this、uh, demonstrates、uh, one way that that might be possible. So they're they're clearly. On a small scale, displaying the kind of properties that we're used to seeing on a larger scale in the approaches that we've got at the moment to power things. So that all looks very promising. Julia did have concerns, though, about the scalability. If you have to collect the nanowires from the bacteria, will that not be a bottleneck? 
Well, Derek Lovely, the resident microbiologist on the paper, may have developed a solution for that. So what we've done recently is we took the gene out of Geobacter and developed a strain of E. coli, which is a very common microbe used for mass production of commodities that's able to also produce these wires so we can make them in large quantities. So I, I really feel that we can easily make kilogram quantities of the wires with this new strain that we have. There are other concerns too, such as how well these proteins will endure in the environment. But Jin thinks they're actually pretty persistent. In fact, we made a device and we put it in the ambient environment for 10 months and then we go back to test it again produce the same electricity. It's bio-derived, it's green, yet it seems to be it's, it's very stable. Jing is excited for the future of this research as he believes this is a sustainable source of power. At the moment, though, he's trying to get to the bottom of exactly how this system works. But in the small scale, he thinks that bacterially grown nanowires could help power things like your phone or your smartwatch. He's got bigger ambitions, though. This thing can scale why not you simply paint, let's say, you paint your entire wall in your home or anywhere so that you can collect much more power to power up the lighting or even possibly other electronic devices in your home. And that, that's what I see. That was Jing Yao. His colleague Derek Lovely also featured and you can read their paper over at nature.com. You also heard from Julia Butt from the University of East Anglia, here in the UK. Finally on the show, it is, of course, time for the news chat, and I'm joined in the studio by Esan Masood, Nature's Africa and Middle East Bureau Chief. Esan, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. So a few stories to cover today then, and I think we should start with the ongoing coronavirus or COVID-19 outbreak that centred, of course, in China. Listeners, as always, this is an ongoing and developing story. So for the latest updates, I recommend you go over to nature.com slash news. But Esan, what's been happening since the show went live last week? Some of the things that have changed is that we're moving into more therapy territory now, and we've discovered that there are more than 80 clinical trials that are now being tested in China for various kinds of treatments. And that's interesting and promising. Of course, these things are not going to emerge straight away. And these won't necessarily be the answer to slowing down uh, the rate of infection. But it's definitely a promising thing. Mm, and, and the WHO are getting involved in these trials. That's right. Yes. Um, we've heard that Samia Swaminathan, the chief scientist at the World Health Organization, says that their teams have been taking stock of their many trials and their idea is to draw up plans for some sort of clinical trials protocol. And what will this protocol do then? So the idea is to have some kind of standardization. I think that's what the World Health Organization is most interested in. So, for example, are the trials designed with some sorts of common parameters in mind, things like control groups, things like randomization, measurement of clinical outcomes. These are the kinds of things they're looking at. What sort of things then are being tested at the moment? Well, it's a little bit of a shopping list, to be honest. So there's, gonna, there's a couple of HIV drugs that are used to block enzymes that viruses need to replicate. Then China's launched a couple of trials to test chloroquine, which is quite a well-known anti-malarial drug. There are some stem cell trials. And then there's also some trials of traditional Chinese medical therapies. And the WHO's chief scientist has made it quite clear that the organization's involvement, particularly in this aspect, is so that herbal remedies can be evaluated with the same level of rigor 
that's expected of pharmaceutical testing. Well, it could be a while then, I guess, before these trials come to fruition. But finding treatment seems seems to be a super important thing because case numbers have been going up and in some cases have increased quite dramatically since last week. They did increase uh, dramatically in the Hubei province, which is, in a sense, the epicentre of the outbreak because the authorities there changed the way in which they're making their calculations. Right now, we know that we're, we're up to about almost 1,900 deaths and about 73,000 uh, cases of infection. And how were case numbers being calculated then in, in Hubei, which, which changed things? So up to now, diagnosis was happening on the basis of lab results. What's now happened is that physicians are being able to diagnose cases on the basis of chest images, and that's certainly bumped up the numbers um, in that one instance which happened on uh, the 14th of February. Mm, and and how, has that, uh, how has that helped physicians in the area? Well, it's, it's definitely it's in response to pleas from clinicians who say they've been overwhelmed uh, by patients with respiratory disease and they don't really have time to wait for the lab results. So that's really been helpful for them in that sense. We also spoke to Michael Mina, who's an infectious disease epidemiologist and an immunologist based at the Harvard School of Public Health in Boston. And he said that, or he told our reporter, that triaging based on symptomatic evaluation and a physical exam is basically the bedrock of hospital-based and, and uh, clinical triage. Well, you talked about some case numbers there, Hassan, um, but it seems there is one case in particular in a different part of the world that hasn't been reported before. That's right, yes. The African continent got its first case in Egypt. Up till now, the WHO had a massive push to um, provide diagnostic testing uh, across 14 different African countries where there was real concerns, particularly around returning Chinese workers who work on various projects in Africa going back and they might be a source of infection. That a kind of expected increase hasn't happened. But yes, we've got we've got the first case in Egypt. So the virus continues to spread then, and it's affecting a lot of people. Uh, nature has actually been running a survey of researchers affected by the outbreak. And listeners, head over to nature.com slash news to read their stories. But it's not just people. Uh, events are being affected as well. And uh, Essan, that's part of our next story. It is, yes. There was meant to be a international conference on biodiversity, on biological diversity. It was going to happen in Kunming in China, and it had to be relocated to Rome because of the coronavirus. Yeah, and this is due to happen next week then. And, and what's this meeting all about? This is a meeting that's supposed to agree or begin the discussion to agree on a whole new set of target indicators for biodiversity loss. Mm, and it's something we've covered on the show before. I, I mean, some of the levels of these losses are staggering. They are. I mean, the, the headline figure that's provided by um, the United Nations Biodiversity Scientific Advisory Body is up to one million species are threatened because of human activities. What's due to be decided at this meeting to try and mitigate losses in future? There has been a 10-year plan for reducing the rate of biodiversity loss. It was agreed in 2010, and the deadline to begin to, uh, to halt or at least reduce the rate of loss was meant to be the end of this year, the end of 2020, and we're not going to meet hardly any of the target indicators. And this is the problem. And of course, this is a very important year, both for climate and for biodiversity, which is why international organizations and government representatives and scientists are going to start to meet and to figure out, well, what's the next set of targets that we need to start agreeing on? And quite frankly, targets that are actually achievable. Well, 
This meeting, as you say, SN, was due to be held in China, and a lot of eyes were on the country and, and their response to biodiversity. Well, why was this specifically? For a couple of reasons. So China is, as so many countries are, a highly ecologically diverse environment. But at the same time, of course, China is a rapidly industrializing in its own and has been in its own country. And it's also helping lots of other countries industrialize too. And we know that a lot of the zones where industrialization is happening, both in China and outside of China, are areas which are quite ecologically fragile. And so the Chinese leadership is extremely conscious of this because its own scientists are telling it that this is happening. And it's trying to find a way around this. You know, how do you industrialize without completely obliterating your ecologically fragile areas? If a new set of targets are to be decided at this meeting, if they've been wildly missed in the last 10 years, what's the feeling from people who are there about these being stuck to this time around? First of all, there's been no mandatory reporting of progress. So every country that's a member state of the UN has to issue what's called a National Biodiversity Action Plan. It's a sort of statement of intent principles. Here's what I'm going to do. But it's not a reporting tool. And so one thing that's really important going forwards is not only a statement of ambition, but actually every year or every few years, what exactly is progress looking like against that ambition? And that's going to be a really important aspect of of these discussions. Well, we'll have to keep an eye out then, SN, and see what is decided at that meeting. But for the meantime, let's move on to our third story. And uh, let's head over to Egypt and a story about Tutankhamun's burial chamber. It is, yes. Let's head to the Valley of the Kings in Luxor. This is definitely one of my favourite stories of the week. The possible discovery of some hidden rooms around Tutankhamun's burial chamber. And to be honest, we don't really know who might be buried in those rooms, what might be in those rooms, but there's pretty much a lot of speculation. Well, let's speculate away then. What sort of things are people thinking might be hidden in these rooms? Well, the big one, if it can be eventually um, confirmed, is that this could be the lost tomb of Nefertiti, the mysterious queen whose uh, remains have never been found. It's the Holy Grail. And is this new find potentially pointing us to the tomb of Nefertiti? That's the big question. Well, what do researchers have to do to answer that question then? And, and how are they looking in this space in the first instance? Because Tutankhamun's burial chamber is quite sealed, uh, there's only one entrance to go into. And these hidden rooms that have been discovered are leading off of his burial chamber. And so that kind of rules out using more invasive methods. And so research teams are using more non-invasive methods and they're using particularly radar. Right, and, and, and how does one go about finding what may be a room to actually seeing what's inside it? That's really difficult. So the, the first thing that has to happen was someone has to replicate this find. So at the moment, it's only one team. So of the teams that have gone before, there's a reasonable amount of consensus that there are some hidden rooms and there's a degree of consensus as to where those rooms might be. This team has found something really quite large and new. And so before anything else happens, someone has to go in there and replicate that. It could be the team themselves repeat their experiment and do it again. It could be that that, that someone else comes in and does it. Well, I guess there must be some excitement in the field about this potential find. Is everyone on board with what this may be? There is excitement, but also not everyone's on board. This is in part a story of two quite strong-willed individuals who have different ways of looking at the world and of looking at the world of Egyptology. So you've got one group 
which is the group that's behind this find. And they put a lot of store in radar and in non-invasive methods. And you've got another group of Egyptologists who think that so far, whatever we found of value in Egyptology has been found using more traditional methods. And so at some point, someone will have to go in and dig. Well, finally, Essen, what happens next then? What's the sort of timeline for this? There isn't really a timeline as such, but one thing that really does need to happen is because there's quite a lot of difference of opinion, not only about what's in there, but even basic things like what methods do you use to make your discoveries and inventions, there almost needs to be some kind of peace conference or a a meeting of the research community just to sit down and just make some basic just agreements on how they're going to move forward. That's the first thing because it's it's quite a field where there's you know, some strong opinions and, and, and differences of views. Well, listeners, to read more about these stories, head over to nature.com slash news. And all that remains is for me to say, Esan, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. That's it for this week. Don't forget you can check out our Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. Or if you're not a Twitterer, then you can send us an email. We're podcast at nature.com. I'm Nick Howe. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.